Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. Yes, that could mean you too. The workouts have been designed to fit into your life so you can move when you can. The 15 minutes you can squeeze in before work. The 20 minutes you get to yourself while the baby naps. The half hour you can spare at lunch. There's a routine for you no matter what your day looks like. A reminder as well, this is included in your Mum Mia subscription. If you are a Mum Mia subscriber, you already have access to Move. Download the Move app and log in with your Mum Mia login. Head to move.mamamia.com.au and use code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. Just a warning that today's episode discusses suicide. If this is a tough one for you, please take care when listening. The choice was allow Brock to live a life in true authenticity, potentially very happy life and hopefully a long life. When you weigh the prospect up and what's the alternative, potentially not having a child, Brock was literally planning her death. What choice do we have? That is a mother talking about her trans son in a recent ABC Four Corners report highlighting the lack of access for some young Aussies to gender-affirming care. For some of those young Aussies, the toll of the wait to receive that care was too much to bear. But what does gender-affirming care look like? Why is it necessary? And why is it so controversial? Today we look at what it means to provide care for gender identity and why what some call life-saving support, others call inappropriate intervention. But first, your news headlines for Tuesday, July 18. The Australian Electoral Commission will today publish the formal yes and no cases for the proposed constitutional change and voice to Parliament. The yes campaign has the formal backing of Indigenous sporting stars, including tennis legend Yvonne Goolagong Cawley, NRL star Jonathan Thurston and the AFL's Eddie Betts, who say nobody understands what a community needs like its own representatives pleading with Australians to grab the moment with both hands. Indigenous Australians Minister Linda Burney saying the idea for The Voice came from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and this was the best opportunity to move forward. The No campaign claims The Voice proposal goes beyond recognition and poses a legally risky change to the constitution that would have unknown consequences, be divisive and permanent. Their case quotes a number of former judges who say The Voice has not been road tested with no comparable constitutional body anywhere else in the world. The voice opponent saying it presents a real risk to Australia's system of government. Russia has torn up the agreement to allow grain exports out of Ukraine, leaving many countries worried it will send food prices out of reach for many. It has been a chaotic 24 hours in the Ukraine conflict, with what's believed to be a water drone hitting the bridge between Russia and Crimea, damaging the surface and reportedly killing a couple. The bridge is a symbol of President Vladimir Putin's military win and annexation of Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. Russia claims the ending of the grain exports 
export deal is not a reaction to damaging the bridge, but rather they hadn't been getting what they had been promised in return with exports of their fertiliser and other food. The UN has slammed the decision saying Russia is using food as a weapon. Elton John has appeared via video link to give evidence at actor Kevin Spacey's trial in the UK. The 63-year-old has pleaded not guilty to 12 charges of sexual offences committed against four men between 2001 and 2013 when the star was mainly living and working in Britain. The accusers saying they were aggressively groped, one claiming Spacey performed oral sex on him while he was passed out at his apartment. Elton John was asked about Spacey's attendance at a charity event hosted by the singer in the early 2000s, on the way to which Spacey is alleged to have sexually assaulted his driver. John said Spacey stayed overnight at his house after the event in 2001, but did not attend the event any other year. The alleged offences reportedly occurred at the White Tie and Tiara Ball in 2004 or 2005. A new study is revealing that many people who believe they're allergic to penicillin actually aren't. In the past, patients had to have a scratch skin test to see if they had a reaction to the drug, but a simpler and cheaper test involving taking a small dose has shown to be just as effective. Of the 382 patients who thought they were allergic who took part in the study at Melbourne's Austin University Hospital, only two had a reaction. Most people who have a reaction to penicillin grow out of it within a decade. Experts saying the secondary line of antibiotics that are prescribed to these people who may not actually need them aren't as effective and can even fuel superbugs. One of the teams competing in the Tour de France is considering pressing charges against a spectator who caused a massive crash in Sunday's 15th stage. Jumbo Visma's Sepp Kuss was brought down by a fan who stretched his arm out towards him, the American losing his balance and triggering a pile-up involving dozens of riders, sending them crashing to the ground. A source says local authorities have identified the spectator, but that he would not be arrested unless the rider and his team decide to sue him. That's your latest news headlines in a moment. Today's Deep Dive. Gender diversity might seem like a new phenomena, but in reality, humanity has been looking beyond the binary for centuries. While in the modern era, we have assigned a gender based on the sex of the baby at birth, Throughout history, there are examples of ancient gods whose gender is fluid, like Hermaphroditus, the son of Hermes and Aphrodite, whose form merged with his lover, revealing male genitalia, breasts and a more feminine body. Several North American tribes have long had language for gender and or sexual orientation outside the cisgendered and binary, often referring to a third gender, which would evolve in more modern times into the phrase two-spirit. First Nations Australians have also always recognised and integrated a more diverse concept of gender beyond the Western concept, with the terms sister girl and brother boy describing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander trans people today. So the concepts of gender fluidity, non-binary and trans are not new, but they are the latest battleground in a culture war that has moved into the healthcare space, following on from other examples, including many women's issues like abortion and the treatment of people who are obese. For young people who grow up in a gender binary focused world, 
When their gender identity doesn't fit the mould of boy or girl matching their sex, it can be distressing when the first signs of puberty kicks in, bodies changing into something that doesn't fit with how they perceive themselves. It's often at this point where young Aussies reach out to their healthcare professionals to find help in dealing with this situation, seeking what we now call gender-affirming care. Gender-affirming care, as defined by the World Health Organization, encompasses a range of social, psychological, behavioural and medical interventions designed to support and affirm an individual's gender identity when it conflicts with the gender they were assigned at birth. Opponents to this model believe affirming someone's gender identity from the start means you may miss underlying causes of things like body dysmorphia or not dealing with a trauma that may be causing the gender distress. And then there are those who dismiss it as another woke concept, preferring to believe children are just going through a phase and that it's more a social problem than a medical one. What the Four Corners report revealed was that access to gender-affirming care is becoming increasingly difficult. Wait lists are long, services are limited, and there's division, even amongst the medical profession itself, about whether affirming someone's gender is the right thing to do. Dr. Brad Mackay is a Sydney-based GP, an author, podcaster, science commentator and provider of gender-affirming care for many patients himself. Dr. Brad, for many of us, when we hear the phrase gender-affirming care, we may automatically think it's straight to prescribing someone hormones. Now, obviously, it's more than that. Can you take us through exactly what gender-affirming care is? Gender-affirming care, it's basically the principle of affirming somebody's gender. So this isn't a decision that just happens. It's not happening overnight. And this is sort of where people get a little bit confused. Often people have gender dysphoria. They don't feel comfortable in the body that they've been born in. They'll often have quite a lot of distress when they're entering puberty and going through all sorts of body changes. There's a lot of counselling, a lot of discussion, and and yeah, over time, people will often come to a conclusion that they are transgender, that they would feel more comfortable with different hormones floating around in their body. Sometimes they will engage with surgery as well. But gender-affirming care is basically so sort of saying, okay, well, from my perspective as a GP, and I see a lot of transgender patients, uh, my principle is basically to sort of say, well, yeah, let's explore this together. I'm not going to push you in, in any direction. We're going to do what you feel comfortable with. And this needs to be an ongoing conversation over time and yeah like if we decide to go in one direction or the other then it's fully informing the patient about it they know what they're in for hopefully their family knows what they're in for as well and everyone is having a very open discussion about what the treatment entails and what the consequences risks and benefits all are you mentioned there that people in this situation often feel a fair bit of distress when puberty arrives that's when a lot of people start puberty blockers. What are puberty blockers? Are they safe? Are they reversible? What do we know about puberty blockers? Yeah, so rather than sort of swapping somebody's hormones over from male to female or female to male hormones, puberty blockers are basically a way to give people time to think. 
And so uh, when people are starting to uh, notice hair growing in weird places and different parts of their body growing, then sometimes people are really distressed by that. And they don't want their voice to deepen or they don't want to grow breasts. Like it, it just doesn't feel right for them. And the more that that happens, the more distress they feel. And so puberty blockers are basically a way to halt that process from occurring. So it's not a forever thing. It might just give somebody another year or two to think about the process, go through counseling and sort of like discover where they're wanting to head further in life. The whole thing is that if we don't use puberty blockers at that time, and somebody is processing through puberty in the direction that they don't feel comfortable with, as that time goes on, they feel more and more distress because their body isn't doing what they think it should be doing. And it also makes it a little bit more difficult to reverse down the track. Using puberty blockers doesn't guarantee that that person's going to go on and have hormone therapy or surgery down the track, right? It's just a time frame within which they can figure out where their head is at and where they want to go. Yeah. So, and I think this is sort of like a bit of a weird misunderstanding as well. So it's basically biding time to process thoughts, talking with family, talking with patients, talking with the medical professionals to make sure that we are doing all the right things for the patient down the track. So if you're using puberty blockers and you're using them for a year or two, then yeah, like it is reversible. If you take them away, then you'll start going down the same track that your hormones will be going down in that direction anyway. If you decide to use hormone therapy, then that's something that you could engage with at the end of using the puberty blockers. So it just enables people to make that decision. Certainly, yeah, the most of the actions of puberty blockers are reversible. So there is some concern that it could cause lower bone density later on in life. So that's certainly discussed at an early stage with doing it. But all of the other parts of the hormones is totally reversible at the end of using puberty blockers. With increasing numbers of young Aussies reaching out for help with gender distress, why does there seem to be such a big divide, even in the medical profession itself, about how to provide that gender-affirming care? I think that's just a very much a hot topic, and I think it creates a lot of distress, particularly for parents. So if you've been growing up and your darling daughter is now saying that they feel that they identify as a man or if they feel that they identify as non-binary, then that can be confusing for a lot of people. And so there is a lot of distress with that. If you're expecting your daughter or son to grow up in a certain way and follow a certain pathway in life and in social circles, and then that's turned upside down, then that is very distressing for parents as well as very distressing for the person who's involved. I think that's what's really driving a lot of the attitudes in society and also like feeding into the medical profession as well. Many of my colleagues will happen to have their own opinions about it. I really didn't know much about it when I started in general practice, and it was only from talking to many people who identified as transgender and, yeah, like having those real deep discussions with people about the distress that they were feeling and trying to piece all of this out and often having very interesting intellectual conversations with people who had obviously thought about this a lot. This is what I find time and time again is that people who are transgender, they've gone through so much thinking and and analyzing their body, these are often not very like rash decisions that are made. And I think my turning point with 
transgender care was really seeing how much people were being distressed, seeing that somebody does have issues with their mental health, if they're having suicidal ideation, then that's really quite dangerous in an emergency measure. Do you ever have people come in to speak to you seeking gender-affirming care who don't decide to go down a road of hormone therapy or surgical transition? Yeah, I've seen a number of young teens coming in with their family, and it's really interesting to have those conversations because often the parents don't have the right language and often the teenager doesn't have the right language, and we're just sort of trying to explore what their future looks like and how they are feeling at that point of time. And every now and again, I do have somebody who comes in, we have an open discussion about it, and they may decide over time that they don't want to have hormonal treatment, that they just want to dress more androgynously and express themselves in different ways that aren't sort of like one way towards male or female, that they have options and don't need to go through hormonal treatment. Like That's not in the end, what they're after, but they're just wanting to be a little bit different and uh, express themselves how they want to. So, And I think that's part of the process, that we're not pushing hormones on young kids. We're not sort of like saying to people that they have to have surgery. I think it's really important to have every option open and the people who need surgery and the people who need hormones will choose that and the people who don't, won't. It's difficult to know with accuracy just how many Australians are trans. The last census data didn't ask a specific enough question that would allow that number to be pulled from the data. But we do know that more and more young Aussies are coming forward asking for access to gender-affirming care as they feel more able to do so and parents are becoming more accepting. We also know that nearly half of transgender Australians have at one stage attempted suicide. This statistic has been attributed to many things, including societal discrimination and bullying, a lack of mental health support, and a lack of access to gender-affirming healthcare. Dr Brad says you can see when someone is given that access, the difference it can make. Yeah, myself and my colleagues quite enjoy often giving somebody hormones for the first time. Often there's been years of discussion, talking, counselling, and often, yeah, like getting that first dose into people. You can just sort of like see the changes in people yeah, very, very quickly. There's often a sense of relief. They've questioned everything themselves. Their family has questioned everything themselves. And they're finally at a stage where they're ready to go along that process. It can be a really celebratory moment when people are able to start that treatment and everyone's on the same page. It can be a really, really powerful moment and it can be really, really helpful for their mental health. What's the flip side of that finally if people can't get access to this kind of care? Well, we've seen in the media lately that there's like three patients were accepted as new patients at a hospital in Sydney over a whole year. It just sort of shows that there's a big demand. There will be hundreds of patients who just aren't even counted. They're not going to be seen. And so they're not really knowing where to get help, not knowing where to get care or trying to get access to care and not being able to get it. And this just causes distress, often causes patients to travel long distances to be able to access care. And for something that's so difficult and intimate for these patients to discuss, this creates a massive hurdle for them to get treatment. 
you can sort of think about if you're needing to talk about like your genitals or your sexual identity or your gender identity, that this is something that's extremely intimate for every individual. And so if you have to travel long distances, if you have to see 10 doctors until you find somebody who's actually able to talk about what you're wanting to talk about, it's just horrendous. And all of these hurdles create more and more barriers to care, more and more distress for patients. And yeah, just like I really feel for people who are going through this decision-making process and trying to transition and not being able to get it, it is just extremely frustrating. The Quickie is produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Callie Borg, with audio production by Tom Lyon.